same age as some of the, the young people that have remained in church today uh, from Bible class. A uh, long time ago, uh, you may well say, because I've got grey hair now, so it seems like uh, you couldn't really have been a teenager, but I was. But one of the things that I loved was uh, mountaineering. Um, and I loved particularly winter mountaineering and snow and ice climbing. And these are all, of course, the days before the internet or YouTube, and none of those things existed. Um, and so I had a couple of really great, big, thick picture books, and they, they, but they, they were accounts of great mountain exploits. Um, and I was fascinated by those stories and accounts of, of how people, how they went on expeditions. Uh, Chris Bonington, uh, the first British, uh, for, first guy uh, for a long time to, to, to uh, climb Mount Everest, how they were involved in climbing Annapurna and all of those great mountains across the Himalayas, uh, the, the world's largest mountain range in Nepal. And one of the things you see that it took to get to the top of Everest and those other big mountains, and it's still the same today, was they needed a team of Sherpas. And this was a, a group of uh, indigenous Nepalese uh, guys who would, they would go ahead of them. They would prepare the way for them. And they would do all of the heavy lifting. They would lay out ropes across uh, difficult and dangerous sections of the, of the ice slopes. And they would make things easy, or at least easier, um, so that they could make it, uh, the climbers could make it to the top of the, those large Himalayan mountains. So that's the Sherpas. Interestingly, and I only discovered this relatively recently, um, and it's interesting at least for uh, someone who's a bit geekish like me, but the name Sherpa has now also been given over to people that we would think of as elite government diplomats around the world. And so when you see those uh, photo uh, shoots that take place maybe at the end of a, a big uh, intergovernmental meeting such as you know, a G8 or a G20 summit, um, and there's the photo shoot uh, with all of the leaders to gather together, um, and there is a communique which is issued of a statement that they have uh, agreed to, um, the Sherpas have been involved in that. Because those statements or communiques that are agreed and issued at those are largely the work of unelected senior government officials, diplomats who have spent many, many months um, preparing for those one or two days of the diplomatic meeting. And those bureaucrats that work on this have come to be known as Sherpas just like the Himalayan mountain guides that they're named after, they do much of the heavy lifting for the leaders that will end up in the spotlight. And perhaps, you know, as we just think back on what's taken place even this week past, there maybe weren't enough Sherpas involved in the discussions that took place between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, leader of North Korea, which failed to produce uh, an agreed outcome and communique. And so we can see the value of these Sherpas, whether it's that big mountain or in intergovernmental talks, people that go ahead and do the groundwork and then help bring others to that same spot. These are the Sherpas. This passage that we read, uh, Exodus chapter 23, I think we can read of what I would describe as that ultimate Sherpa. One that goes ahead of the Israelites. 
someone that's going ahead to protect and who is going to, to bring the Israelites eventually to the promised land. Because God says in verses 20 to 21 of Exodus 23, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you, an angel ahead of you, to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. I don't know what you think of angels. There are, if you type the word angels into Google, I, you can just imagine there will be hundreds of thousands of articles and all sorts of views about what and who angels are. But I think one of the most interesting things is that there are many people who don't believe in God, and yet they believe in angels. Because for many people, they have this surreal sense that they find it comforting that to think that there is someone out there watching for them, a supernatural power, and so they might think of an angel guarding them. But yet somehow, they manage to not believe in God. But you see, if we believe in angels, then we need to believe in God. Because the angels haven't always existed. They are part of the universe that God created, and they have a place in God's purpose. And we see that in this passage, how they have a very clear place in God's purpose. We see in this and in all, many of the other passages that talk of angels, the greatness of God's love for us, and how uh, his plan for us, and how it is worked out through angels. Angels are not just a warm, cuddly, supernatural being. Because we also see how God uses used them in 2 Samuel 24, verses 16 and 17, where uh, there was a plague was brought on Israel as part of God's judgment. How God used an angel um, to, uh, to strike down Herod, King Herod, in Acts uh, chapter 12, 23, because he did not give God uh, the glory and worship. And of course, you will remember, because we spent uh, quite a number of weeks in Revelation, how the, the angels will pour out bowls of wrath, God's wrath, in Revelation 16. But we also read in Revelation 5, verse 11 to 12, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So you see, angels have many roles that God uses them for. And this angel in Exodus 23 provides encouragement. God promises that the angel of the Lord will go before his people in order to deliver them into the promised land. You know, up to now, God has, has led them through the desert by a pillar of uh, fire and cloud. Let's be clear, as Philip Ryken says in his commentary on Exodus, 
A cloud, as we know it, is an inanimate object. It was no angel. But this angel that God is sending is clearly a living, moving, speaking, and responsive being. This is a powerful, supernatural being. Verse 21, it says, Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. But jump forward to what uh, we read in uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this angelic supernatural being is powerful and not to be messed with. God's own name. His authority is in the angel. And that's what we read in these verses. The angel is the very representative of God himself. What does this mean for us? I think one of the things that we, we can take from this is actually how it points us to, to Christ. Because this angel or messenger has some of the very attributes of God and yet at the same time is separate and distinct from God. That's what we see in the Trinity. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit have the attributes of God, and yet they are distinct from God. God promised to send a saviour to the Israelites who would lead them and not forget about them. And isn't that also what Jesus himself promised? We read that in our call to worship from Matthew 28, uh, verse 20, how Jesus told the disciples he would be with them to the very end. And then that short while later in Acts, we read of the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will be with each of us when we come to faith. This angel was leading the Israelites to the promised land. For us, we have not reached the promised land. Some of the young people uh, I, that are from the Bible class that are staying here, you know, they may well be sitting thinking, how on earth do I survive and manage as a Christian in a world nowadays that is very different from what it was 20 or 30 years ago? Thinking, I cannot do this on my own. And you are absolutely right. You can't do it on your own. But as God sent the angel to the Israelites, so God has sent the Holy Spirit to journey with you through your life, through the trials, the temptations, the joys, the failures that we all undoubtedly face as Christians. We might not have an angel guiding us, leading us, but we have absolute certainty that we have the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit assures us that once we have come to faith, that we really are an adopted child of God. That whatever age we are, that we can cry out to to God as Abba, Father, and we become heirs to all of the good things that are in store for us. That's what we read in Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, uh, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Those are wonderful promises that we have as Christians knowing that the Holy Spirit guides us, goes ahead of us, goes with us, journeys as we uh, live our life of faith. But the second point and theme that I want us to, to focus on today is what God tells the Israelites in verses 24 and 25. That is that there is to be no compromise about their behavior. They are to avoid sin. They're not to bow down to other gods. They are not to serve them. They are to serve God, and when they serve God, they will know the blessings that flow out from the covenant. And this is, of course, a, a clear uh, reminder of the commandments. It wasn't easy for the Israelites. Just like us, they too faced many temptations. Only a few chapters ahead, chapter 32, we will read how dramatically they fell and they gave into the temptation when they built that golden calf. And it may well be easy for us to say, oh, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't give in the way those Israelites did and build a great big golden calf. But we do give in. And, you know, there's a subtle message here that goes alongside this bigger message. Because, you see, God is going to send, and we read in this, how he's going to send his terror ahead, verse 27. And this refers to a, a feeling of fear and dread which will engulf and overwhelm the, the people of the lands as they realize that God was on the side of Israel. This is exactly what Rahab would acknowledge in Joshua 2 verse 9 when the people of Canaan and the king of Jericho realized that the Israelites were spying out the land. Verses 8 and 9 in Joshua 2 is what we read. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab that is, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And you see, although the Israelites were going to succeed, and they were going to succeed and invade that land, it wasn't all going to happen in one go. And this is the subtle message that we read in verse 29. It was going to happen slowly. Little by little, they would take over the land. And the subtle point is this, that the Israelites did face a strong temptation. And that was a temptation that as they slowly entered the land to make peace with the Canaanites, that they would slowly become accustomed to the Canaanite ways, the Canaanite behavior. That they would slowly adjust and start to worship the Canaanite gods. Slowly, they would forget their own God and worship the Canaan gods. They would drift into their way of living. 
But God had made it really clear in verse 24 um, of Exodus 23, where he says, Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. And then in verses 32 to 33, right at the very end of that chapter, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. God had made it abundantly clear They were not to make any sort of peace treaty or worship these foreigners' false gods and idols. What does this mean for us? I don't think any of us are sitting on the edge of invading a foreign land. Uh, There are not too many great big idols that are made of wood or or precious metals or sacred stones that uh, we are thinking of bowing down to the way the Israelites were facing them. But there is a plethora of other gods that we can worship. And what is a god to one of you may not be a god to someone else. So again, for for the teenagers, perhaps they are sitting here wondering how it could affect them. Well, let me paint a picture, and it is a one-sided picture, but I think we can take something from it. A young, fit teenager boy, aware that he wants to look good, and that's okay, starts to do a bit of training. First of all, just to make sure you're reasonably fit. Then they start to become a bit more focused. They want to make sure that they've got good muscle definition. They then want to make sure that their abs are that perfect six-pack. Clearly rippled. No ounces of fat there. Have they got clearly defined and uh, muscular biceps? Then they start to take some fat buster tablets, then protein booster. And slowly, just like the Israelites, worshipping not a stone idol, but worshipping the idol of body of self. And that God of self is one of the great gods of our generation. It could apply to girls as well, or indeed to any of us at any age. So many of us are obsessed with projecting the right image of ourselves on social media, across Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is. There are many idols, many false gods, and they are slowly trying to tempt us in, and sometimes they do it. Let me read directly from Philip Ryken's commentary. And here he is talking about Christians and the battle to compromise with sin. It's in his uh, book, Preaching the Word uh, on Exodus. What he says is, We are tempted to think that since our salvation is secure, it will not harm us to be exposed to sin, at least in small quantities. We tell ourselves that it's okay to indulge in a little self-pity, especially since life is so discouraging. We think that it's all right for us to look at pornography because we've still got things under control. Or we say, I don't really have a drinking problem. I just get drunk sometimes. Or we cut a few corners at work 
no one will ever know. We enjoy a juicy morsel of gossip or we shade the truth. We don't lie exactly, but if someone gets the wrong impression and it works to our advantage, we don't take the trouble to correct them. These are the kinds of little compromises that trap Christians every day, and they inevitably lead to bigger and bigger sins. You know, there are things in each of our lives that we might need to get rid of completely. There might be places that we need to stay away from. Desires that we should not entertain. That we need to rid ourselves of. Or conversations that we should just not start. Because you see, like those Israelites, God wants us to acknowledge him as our only God. He wants us all to worship the one true God. He wants us to give our lives over fully, wholly, completely to him. And we need to be vigilant and keep our eyes and lives focused on Jesus. Like the Israelites who advanced and won victory little by little, we too can win the battle little by little. Led not by an angel, but by the Holy Spirit. And every day we can come become a bit more like Christ. Let's pray.